Welcome to this special midweek edition of the Southcrest Live podcast featuring the teaching of Dr. David Wilson. If this is your first time to listen, be sure to connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. And thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this message from our Wednesday night series. There's a lot of sound could come out of that guy. Thank you, Chris. I would say that's a biblical song, wouldn't you? <laughs> Psalm 23. If you have your Bibles, open them to Ephesians chapter 1. I want to tell you that next Wednesday night, next Wednesday night, we're going to meet in the venue because the choir is going to be recording in here on a Christmas project that they're working on. And so we're going to let them have this room just next Wednesday. That'll be the only night we need to do it. I'll try to remind you at the end, and then we'll try to put it in the bulletin. But those folks that are not here tonight, just when you eat, just stay down there. Stay down at the venue, or we're going to meet down there uh, next Wednesday night at 6. So just an FYI. Ephesians chapter 6, excuse me, Ephesians 1, verse 6. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. It's, well, I'm going to actually start reading in verse 3 since um, we've had a little break in between here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, I want to remind you that verses 3 through 14 is one sentence. Now, I know there's some punctuation in here, but in the Greek manuscripts, it's one sentence. And um, so if you're ever going to memorize one sentence in the Bible, this is not the one you want to memorize. I'm just kidding. If, you want, if you're looking for an easy one, Jesus wept, I recommend really well to you. <laughs> blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. I'd like to have a moment of prayer. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, we're mindful of the folks that are on that prayer list tonight that... Some are in the hospital. Some have lost loved ones. Some are battling illnesses that they've been battling for a long period of time. And we don't want to forget that you are the great physician, that you can touch their lives and make them well. And Lord, as we talk about redemption tonight, we lift up all of those young people and all of the adults at Jones Stadium tonight. There are many there who are going to go from 
not knowing you as Savior, to giving their lives to you. And we pray that you will be with the one who's speaking, those who are sharing testimonies, that you would fill them, empower them, but most of all, that your spirit would have the freedom to move in the hearts of those young men and young ladies, that you would draw them to yourself. So, Lord, we pray for fields of faith tonight, that you would change lives for eternity. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. You've heard of that, you've heard that phrase, they've gone from rags to riches. Well, tonight, I want you to think about that spiritually. You've gone from spiritual, or really from the rags of sin, to the riches of redemption. You ought to leave here tonight saying, God, thank you for my salvation. Thank you for what you have given me. In 1799, some of y'all may remember that, 1799, a man by the name of Conrad Reed, he was the son of farmer and former Hessian soldier John Reed, or Johannes Reed. He found a 17-pound yellow rock in Little Meadow Creek on the family farm in Cabarrus County, North Carolina. And for three years, that rock served as a doorstop. In 1802, a jeweler from Fayetteville, North Carolina, identified the rock as a large nugget of gold. He told John Reed to name his price. And Reed, not understanding the true value of gold, asked for what he thought was a hefty price, a whole week's salary, $3.50. The nugget's true value was $3,600. He did not recognize the value of that gold. The disciples did not realize the value uh, of Jesus. And even more, after following him for three years, they still didn't realize who he was until his resurrection. Now I want to ask you, a lot of you have grown up in church. A lot of you have been in church all your life. Since you were a baby, you remember hearing about Jesus. But don't ever get to the place where you look at him and you don't remember the value that he is like that lump of gold. Redemption. The word redemption is one of the central, if not the central theme of the scripture, but especially Ephesians and it carries more the idea of exchanging one thing for another. When you hear the word redemption, if you've got hair the color of mine, you may remember those S&H green stamps. And you used to get those stamps at different places, and then they had a redemption center where you went down and you changed those for something else. Well, I want us to talk about redemption, and when you speak about it, I want you to, to see the spiritual gold nugget that it really is. First of all, let's talk about the essence of redemption. In verse 7, it says, in him we have redemption through his blood. Now, redemption, there are really six different words. They're not all translated redemption. Two of them are but out of all six of these words are taken from the field of law. 
And they're used in the New Testament in relationship to salvation. They're legal terms. For example, the word dikaio is not translated in the English redemption, but it is sometimes translated justification or justified. And it's a legal term. It means to be acquitted of a charge. It's theologically used to speak of a sinner that's been vindicated or justified or declared righteous. Let me give you a verse, Romans 5, 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Another word is the word aphiomi. It, it basically means to send away. It was used in a legal way as a legal repayment or cancellation of a debt or the granting of a pardon, to send away, to get rid of, it, it, to use to cancel a debt. It's used in the scripture to speak of God's forgiveness of sin. Romans 4, 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. You can also look at Ephesians 4, 32, since we're in Ephesians, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you, ephemi. So you've got the word for justified, to, to be declared righteous. You've got the word ephemi. Then you've got another word that's that's called weathesia. Now, it doesn't matter how it's pronounced, but it refers to the process of adopting a child. When uh, Paul rep used it to represent the believer's adoption into God's family, Romans 8, 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. In verse 5, it says that he has predestined us to adoption as sons. So justification, adoption, and then to cancel a debt, those are all legal terms that the, the essence of redemption contains. Then you have the word katalasso, which means to reconcile two people, two parties that are at odds with one another. Well, the New Testament tells us that. Romans 5.10, it says, For when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So we were enemies with God. We're now not enemies anymore. Our debt has been canceled. We have been forgiven of our sins. We have been adopted. All four of those words are part of redemption. But there are two words that I'm about to tell you that are translated redemption. One of them is agorazo. Now, if y'all went to, if any of you went to Greece with us, a lot of times when we were going through some of the um, ruins, the places that we visited, the God would say, this was the agora which meant it was the buying and trading place. It was the marketplace. It was the shopping area. And the word agora means marketplace. And, and so the word denotes 
a spiritual purchase, that we've been purchased, um, we've been bought. Revelation 5, 9 says, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us, bought us, brought us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And then there's one other word for redemption and it's the word used right here. And the word is latrao. And it means to release from captivity, to be set free. It carries even a stronger meaning than agorazo, and it's behind the noun here. The word redeemed, it was used to refer to paying a ransom or to release a person from slavery or bondage. Now, during the New Testament time, it's been estimated that the Roman Empire had 60 million slaves. So slave trading and slave buying and selling was a major business. And if you had a loved one that was a slave, because most of all the people that the Romans conquered, they made slaves out of. If, if you had a loved one that was a slave and y- you could, and you were free and you could purchase them, then you could buy them and grant them freedom and you would give them a written certificate stating that they had been freed. So this word here, redemption, is one of the six that's really under the umbrella of the concept and essence of redemption but it means to be freed as a slave. And the concept of delivering or setting a man free from a situation which he was powerless to do himself. You could not free yourself from sin. Neither could I. And a person who was a slave could not free themselves, but they could be purchased. And Jesus said in John 8, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Romans 7, 14 says that we are all sold into the bondage of sin. And so these legal, these, see all the legal language here? That's all in our redemption. And he uses the word redemption here in verse 7, but he uses that one word that means to be freed as a slave. In him we have freedom through his blood. He purchased us. He paid the price. Well, let's look at the elements of redemption. Now, we go back to verse 6, and I want you to notice, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has accepted us in the Beloved. Folks, did you know that grace is always before redemption for us? Without grace, there's no redemption for you and me. It's the antecedent of redemption. So in verse 6, he mentions the grace of God because without God's grace, you, you and I never be saved. And we're slave to sin and we're doomed for eternity because we cannot free ourselves from Sin. A lot, of, a lot of people try to free themselves from sin. They, you know, there was a time when people thought if they came on Wednesday night, that was extra credit. You know, you got rid of some sin. 
But now, there, let's talk about the persons of redemption. There's two persons mentioned here. Verse 6 says, To the praise of, of the glory of his grace by which he, who is the he? Jesus. He, the Redeemer. First person of the redemption is the Redeemer. It's God's grace that sent the beloved. The beloved is Jesus. Uh, that word speaks of someone who's loved by God, but, but God himself had paid the price for our sin. It's, it's the picture of the Old Testament kinsman Redeemer. You ever heard that term? You know, you really hear that term in the book of Ruth. Because you see that illustrated with Boaz when Naomi and Ruth, Naomi's sons died, and one of those sons was Ruth's husband. They came back to their hometown. And Boaz was a relative of Naomi. And so to be a kinsman redeemer, and the law said that if if you were somehow kin to them, and you had the means to do it, and you wanted to do it, you could, be, you could be the kinsman redeemer. You could pay off their debts. You could, you could rescue them, and, and in some cases, marry you know, them. Well, Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. He's our redeemer. Is he kin to us? So how did he become kin to us? I know he created us, but... He became one of us, didn't he? He had to become a man in order to redeem us. So he was kin to us. Now, you understand what I'm saying here. But he also was able to pay the price because he never sinned. And he wanted to. You know, today a lot of people know the name of Jesus but they just either ignore it or they don't understand exactly what he has done for us. He's our redeemer. He's the only one that could have redeemed us. You ever thought about the problems Jesus would have if he were here in bodily form today? Let me give you a little comic relief here. If he were here in bodily form today, he'd be wanted by the FDA for turning water into wine without a license. <laughs> the EPA for killing fig trees. The AMA for practicing medicine without a license. The Department of Health for asking people to open graves for raising the dead and for feeding 5,000 people in the wilderness. He'd be wanted by the NEA for teaching without a certificate OSHA for walking on water without a life jacket and for flying without an airplane. The SPCA for driving hogs into the sea. The National Board of Psychiatrists for giving advice on how to live a guilt-free life. The NOW for not choosing a woman apostle. The Abortion Rights League for saying whoever harms children is better that they've never been born the interfaith movement for condemning all other religions and by the zoning department for building mansions without a permit. 
Jesus was not just a great teacher. Muslims believe he was a prophet. We know who he is. He's God incarnate, the kinsman redeemer. He's the only one that could redeem us. We know him as our redeemer. And you'll notice it says that it was freely bestowed. He made us accepted. Verse 6, made us accepted. It's really a play on words. Paul says he has graced us with grace. You are accepted in God's kingdom through Jesus Christ. You don't have to keep earning it. You don't have to keep hoping. You're accepted. The other person of the of redemption is the redeemed. You'll notice in verse 6, excuse me, verse 7, well, verse 6, by his grace by which he made us. Who is us? Those of us who know Jesus. The saints. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air. We lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging in the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. We're going to see that in chapter 2. We needed a redeemer. We needed rescuing. We needed freeing. We needed purchasing. That's why Titus 2.14 says, Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Rick Warren wrote a book called The Heart of Christmas. In that book, he said, for three years, I was a lifeguard. They fired me because every time I saw somebody raise their hand because they were drowning, I said, yes, I see that hand. God bless you. Is there another? Yes, God bless you too. Rick Warren is the pastor at Saddleback Church in California. And he goes on to say, and one of the things that all lifeguards know is that you can't save anybody as long as they are trying to save themselves because they'll take you under the water with them. Swim out to them, and if they're flailing around in the water, you just wait until finally they just give up and collapse. And once they give up, it's really easy. You just put your arm over their shoulder and swim back to shore. There's nothing to it, but you can't save them as long as they're trying to save themselves. And until a person realizes their need for redemption... They see no need for a redeemer until they understand they're lost. I, you can't be saved until you know you're lost. And there are a lot of people today who are religious, and I don't really think they know they're lost because they think if I'm a member of this organization or this church, if I do this, if I do this, then I'm okay. I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it on my own. But you and I don't have... We don't have any, any hope without a redeemer. We are the redeemed. So when you join here, anytime we join together and look at God's word and we sing, we join on Sunday and we worship, you are in the fellowship of the redeemed.
not the perfect, those who've been set free, those who were lost in sin, those who were dying in sin, those who were slaves, you've been set free. That's why Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. I feel so sorry for all these people out here trying to earn it. You can't. Well, not only do we see the persons of redemption, but we also see the price of redemption. Verse 7 says, in him we have redemption through his blood. 1 Peter 1.18, we were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Life is in the blood. You lose enough blood, you lose life in the body. We're about to enter the time of year when we are going to focus on Christmas, the birth of Jesus. I know this is a dumb question for all you brilliant theologians, but is the virgin birth really that important? Yeah, you know why? Because of the blood. If he'd had an earthly father, he would have had a sinful nature. He would have been born with a sinful nature. But since he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, he was tempted like we are tempted, but without sin. He did not sin. He could have sinned. And if he had, he would have disqualified himself to be our Redeemer. It's amazing how many churches don't want to talk about the blood anymore. Max Walsh left a warm mountain lodge in the Austrian Alps. And while he was out, the weather changed, and he was caught in a blinding snowstorm and eventually just collapsed. The owner of the lodge sensed Max had lost his way and sent his best dog to look for him. And following his God-created instincts, this well-trained dog discovered Max still lying where he had fallen in a semi-conscious state. And responding to his master's orders, the dog grabbed the sleeve of Walsh's frozen jacket, began to jerk and to pull on it. Well, responding, Walsh began to regain his senses. He saw the dog. He was still sort of out of it, mistook him for a wolf and instinctively pulled his hunting knife out and stabbed the dog. Well, badly wounded, the dog let go and limped back to the lodge where he fell dead from the loss of blood. And sensing what had happened, the owner made his way through the blizzard, carefully following the trail of blood, and he found Walsh once again in a semi-conscious state, but was able to carry him back to the safety of the lodge where he survived. And Walsh's life was saved because a faithful dog carried out his master's command, literally shedding his blood in the process. And what's sad to me is how many people will be moved by a story like that and yet don't think very much about Jesus shedding his blood for you and me. Jesus became one of us. He bled. He suffered. He 
paid the price. He could relate to us. Max Licato wrote a book entitled In the Eye of the Storm, and he tells about a little boy who went to a pet store. And he looked in the window, and he saw a bunch of little puppies. So he goes inside, and he asks the owner. He said, sir, I want to buy one of those puppies. How much are they? The owner said, they're $20. The little boy said, well, I don't have $20, but you keep that puppy. I'm going to make sure I get the money. And the owner said, well, that puppy probably won't be here anymore. There were a lot of little puppies, but he had his eye on a particular one. He said, it probably won't be here. They'll be gone by the time you get the money. They sell really fast. And the boy said, well... I have a feeling my puppy will still be here. So he went out and he, and he really worked hard. He washed windows, cleaned yards, did errands until he had $20. And he ran back to the pet store and with those bills watered up in his little fist, he put them on the counter and he said, now I want my puppy. And the owner said, well, go over there and choose what puppy you want. And the little boy went over there and sure enough, the puppy he wanted was still there. He picked that puppy up and the owner noted that it was the runt and it had a birth defect. It had a crippled leg. And the owner said, son, you don't want that dog because that dog never will run after you. That dog may never be able to fetch. I've got all of those healthy puppies there. Don't you want one of those healthier puppies? And the little boy said, no, sir, this is the one I want. And he took the puppy and he started walking out. And that's when the first time the owner noticed that the little boy had braces on his legs. And he knew what it was to be handicapped. And he bought that little puppy because he could identify with it and he could relate to it. He could see there was something worthwhile in that puppy. And I want you to understand that's exactly what Jesus did for you and me. Why he would come to a bunch of crippled, conditioned, and sin people and look at us with any kind of sense of worth being worthwhile but that's what jesus did he died for you and me he thought we were worth it now let's get to that lump of gold let's look at the effects of redemption verse seven we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Forgiveness. The primary result of redemption for a believer is being forgiven. We're guilty. Israel's greatest holy day was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And on that day, the high priest obviously would take two unblemished sacrificial goats. One goat was killed and his blood was sprinkled on the altar as a sacrifice. Then he took the other one and he placed his hands on the head of that, symbolically laying the sins of the people on the animal. And that goat was taken out into the wilderness where it could not find its way back. Symbolically, the sins of the people went with the goat never to return to them again. You can find this in Leviticus 16 verses 7 through 10. But that enactment, as beautiful and meaningful as it was, did not actually remove the sin of the people. Only God can remove the sin of people. And as I've already mentioned, that word of me, which means forgiveness, basically means to send away. 
When you can't repay a debt, it's canceled or you grant a pardon. And through the shedding of the blood, his own blood, Jesus actually took the sins of the world on him and died for us. The wages of sin is death. And I know that you've heard this time and time again, but may we never take it for granted. Your redemption, even though it's free to you, came at a high price. God has taken our sins, and what's he done with them? He separated them from us. He, he sent them away. How far? As far as the east is from the west. Put them in the depths of the sea, Micah 7, 9 says. It talks about infinity. He, why did he not say, <coughs> excuse me, why did he not say north to south? Because <clears throat> if you go north far enough, you start going south. But if you head off east, <clears throat> and you can keep going east and never run into, you'll never start going west unless you turn around and go west. And, and he said, I've taken your sins and separated them as far as the east is from the west. He put them in the depths of the sea. I always said he put up a, fish, a, a sign that said no fishing there. To forgive means that he's given up the right to punish us for our sin. You are not going to face the wrath and punishment of God Jesus took your whipping, took your prize, took your death for you. We've forgiven. And but, but well, what a minute, wait a minute. Did any of y'all have any trouble with sin this week? You know, when Jesus was washing the feet of the disciples, he came to Peter, and Peter said, no, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus said, Peter, you're going to have to let me wash your feet. And and, and Peter said, well, then wash me all over. And he said, you don't need to be washed all over. You just need your feet washed. I use the example of, you know, when my wife and I have a disagreement, and I'm usually the one that's the cause of it. When I come seeking her forgiveness, I don't have to go get married again because that commitment happened 41 years ago. Well, you don't have to be saved over and over and over and over. But we do have 1 John 1, 9 that we confess our sins and we come to him daily to stay kind of a daily cleansing. Do y'all take a bath every day? If you don't, you need to. <laughs> well, daily, fellowshipping with the Lord for just a moment to say, Lord, I seek your forgiveness today for what I did yesterday or whatever the Holy Spirit puts on your heart, but you stay in useful fellowship with the Lord. And, and it says in verse 7 that we are forgiven according to the riches of his grace. It didn't say out of the riches of his grace. It said according to. Now, is there a difference? Yes. Let me give you an example. If, if you went to a multimillionaire and you asked him to contribute to some worthy cause that you had that was genuine, and he wrote you a check for $25. He's given out of his riches. But if you got a multimillionaire and he writes you a check for $100,000, he's given according to his riches. And God says, I've forgiven you through Jesus Christ according to my riches. He's lavished grace upon us. 
Listen, I, I put it this way. He didn't give you just barely enough grace to cover your sin. A lot of people think, well, I got just barely enough grace to cover my sin. And if I sin, I'm, my sin's going to outweigh my grace, outweigh his grace. He's lavished grace on you. You're swimming in it. Paul assured us. He said, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Romans 5.20. So he didn't give us enough forgiveness just to barely cover our sins. He's given us the forgiveness we need to cover it all. The second effect is right here in verse 9. Or actually the end of verse 8. He's made it abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. He's given us direction. The word wisdom is the word Sophia emphasizes understanding life. And don't you, aren't you glad you know the issues of life? Think about it. Is this all there is? This earth? Is this, this physical life? Is this all there is? How do you know that? Because the Holy Spirit, because the Word of God, because God Himself has shown you the issues of life. We know that we're created by God. We know that we're the lights of the world. We know that when we die, we're going to go to heaven. We know that we're citizens of another kingdom. We know the real issues of life. That's wisdom. That's what God has given you, direction. We wonder about all these people and why they do the most awful things. It's because they've got no life. They're in darkness. They don't have any light. I've often wondered, how could a person do some of the stuff they do? It just shows you how depraved man can be until the Holy Spirit changes you and forgives you and gives you new life, and now you begin to see the real issues of life. We also have insight or or prudence, New King James says, phronesis, it, it emphasizes practical understanding. We see the needs of people and the problems and principles of everyday living. It's a spiritual insight in handling everyday affairs. God not only forgives us and takes away corruption, he also says, I'm going to walk with you and guide you and give you all the necessary things you need to live a life for me. We know where we're going. I meet so many people today, they don't have any idea what they're going to do with their life. But you've got direction. You're going somewhere. He's also given us hope. Verse 9 and 10, it says, you know, has made known to us the mystery of his will. It's a divine truth only known by God's people. We understand. I'm going to be talking about God's will Sunday. We understand what God's will is. There's several realms to God's will. But in Christ, we're part of God's eternal purpose to gather all things in Christ. Verse 10, he will gather together in one, in one all things in Christ. Now, that little phrase means that God's going, it's, it's, a, it's a means to sum it all up at the very end the Lord's going to bring it all together. You know when that's going to happen? In the millennial reign of Jesus. Creation groans. We're looking for him to return. He's going to bring it all together. That all one 
in verse 10, in one, all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth are in him. Michelangelo, famous artist, got real irritated with a lot of his fellow artists. And one day in frustration, he said, why do you keep filling gallery after gallery with endless pictures of the one theme of Christ in weakness, Christ on the cross, and most of all, Christ hanging dead? Why do you concentrate on the passing episode as if it were the last work, as if the curtain dropped down there on disaster and defeat? That dreadful scene lasted only a few hours, but to the unending eternal Christ, eternity, Christ is alive. To the unending eternity, Christ is alive. Christ rules and reigns in triumphs. We're looking for him to come. We know Jesus is alive. He's not dead. Well, I close with this, and maybe, maybe you remember this, and you think about how the Lord wanted you. Mary Ann Bird, in her memoir entitled The Whisper Test, tells of the power of words of acceptance in her own life. She was born with multiple birth defects. She was deaf in one ear. She had a cleft palate a disfigured face, a crooked nose, lopsided feet. And as a child, Mary, Mary Ann suffered not only with these physical impairments, but also the emotional damage that was inflicted by other children. Mary Ann, they would say, what happened to your lip? She would lie. She'd say, I cut it on a piece of glass. But one of her worst experiences at school was the day of the annual hearing test. The teacher would call each child to her desk, and the child would cover first one ear and then the other, and the teacher would whisper something to the child like, the sky is blue or you have new shoes. This was the whisper test, and if the teacher's phrase was heard and repeated, the child passed the test. To avoid the humiliation of failure, Mary Ann would always cheat on the test, secretly cupping her hand over her one good ear so that she could still hear what the teacher said. One year, Mary Ann was in the class of Miss Leonard, one of the most beloved and popular teachers in the school. Every student, including Mary Ann, wanted to be noticed by her, wanted to be her pet. Then the day of the dreaded hearing test came. When her turn came, Marianne was called to the teacher's desk. As Marianne cupped her hand over her good ear, Miss Leonard leaned forward to whisper. She said, I waited for the words, and God must have put them in her mouth, those seven words that changed my life. Miss Leonard did not say to Marianne, the sky is blue or you have new shoes. What she whispered was, I wish you were my little girl. God says that to every one of us who have been deformed by sin. I wish you were my son. I wish you were my daughter. I want you as my child. And folks, 
We have a heavenly father who wanted us even in our sin. We've gone from the rags of sin to the riches to the gold nugget of redemption. You're a child of God. He loves you dearly. He whispers to you, I wish you were my child. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us. Our love is so imperfect that it's hard for us to fathom why you would love us. We thank you for the, our redemption, for being our redeemer, for giving us forgiveness, for giving us direction in our life, for giving us hope. Thank you that we have hope and assurance. We pray, Lord, again for those tonight, those boys and girls, those young people who may not feel like anybody cares about them. We pray that you would whisper in their ear, I want you to be my child. I pray, Father, that you'd help us to share that glorious news with other people. Thank you, Lord, for whispering to us. We truly are a rags-to-riches story. And we thank you. We look forward to that blessed hope when Jesus comes again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this installment of the Southcrest Wednesday Night Series featuring Senior Pastor David Wilson. Remember, you can also live stream our Sunday and Wednesday services. Go to southcrestlive.tv for more details or to southcrest.org to learn more about Southcrest Baptist Church. And thanks for listening. 